Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Jim Barker. Jim is the proverbial football lifer, a longtime coach and general manager who has been a part of five Grey Cup championship winning teams, once in Montreal, once in Calgary, and three times with your Toronto Argonauts. After more than a quarter century of involvement in the Canadian Football League, Jim can these days be found on your television screens and on your mobile devices, covering the CFL for TSN, the Sports Network. Welcome, Jim, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, I'm actually here in Toronto. I have a beautiful condo I love here. I became a citizen back in uh, 2018 when I got fired the last time and I didn't want to have to leave Canada. So I had been here since 96 and I said, you know what, it's time I become a citizen. So I went from being a permanent resident to a citizen and excited about it. So I live up here year round. Excellent. Well, we're glad to have you be here. You are once again up to your elbows in alligators with the current CFL season. But I sense that football, football, football is what makes life great for you. It really is. It's ever since I've been involved and I've been involved in all sports when I was a kid. That was that was my thing was playing baseball and umpiring baseball and you know, I got into coaching and I've just, uh, I've just been blessed. I'm 66 years old and never worked a day in my life. I mean, I, I hate for people to know that I would do what I'm doing now for free, but it's been that way my whole life. I, I feel like I've been fortunate to have never, never really gone to work. I, I, it's, it's one of those things I talk to my kids about. And, you know, when you can actually make a living and don't feel like you're working. That's the key to life. You have achieved the key to life, which is great. Jim, I want to go all the way back and get the James Barker story. You are, as you noted, not a native Torontonian. You are not a native Canadian. Where were you born? And, and please describe your upbringing. Well, I was born in Pasadena, California, right where they have the Rose Bowl. So you see it every day on on New Year's at the Rose Parade. It's always sunny and beautiful. But I... Uh, basically grew up, I went to Arcadia High School there right next to Pasadena and then junior college at Pasadena City College and then to USC. I got hurt as a football player. I started coaching when I was real young, when I was still in high school. And I went to college and majored in business because I had no clue of what I was going to do or what I wanted to do. And you know, my mother and father said, you know, well, major in business and that's that's versatile. So I went two years majoring in business and just going to college was a bit of a chore. And a guy that was one of the coaches in this basketball league, I my first thing I ever coached, I coached kids basketball. It was an 11 and 12 year old league. And uh, my first year doing it, I drafted all 11 year olds for some reason. I don't even know why. And first year we went about 500. Second year, never lost a game. And it was like, okay, this is how you do this. And uh, the guy, guy coaching in that league who was a sports writer, a local sports writer, um, we were just talking about what I'm going to do. And I said, yeah, I majored in business. I don't know. I really love coach. He said, well, go be a coach. And so I went, I thought a lot about it, went home and told my mother and father that 
I'm going to change my major from business to PE and I'm going to become a coach. And my mother just had a heart attack. She said, Jim, you have to make a living. You cannot do this. You can't do this for, for a living. And I said, no, I'm going to. And, uh, you know, it's, it, here's a great story is as time went on and I, I coached for 20 years in college football in the States. When I got my first head coaching job in 1999 here in Toronto, uh, and it was a big deal. We had a, a big press conference at the Sky Dome then, and uh, I flew my mother in. My father was sick at the time, but I flew my mother in for that press conference, and uh, she told that story about her saying to me, Jim, you need to get a real job. You can't go major in PE. And so... Uh, that was that was great for me that she got a chance to see me that you know you can make a living at it if you you know it was a lot of years coaching has changed a lot when i came into it back in the late 70s early 80s it was it's very much a apprentice job and you worked a lot of years for nothing and i would work all night as a security guard in downtown san francisco and then coach at, uh, I coached at San Francisco State. Actually, Mike Holmgren, uh, we gave him his first, uh, who won a Super Bowl with the Packers and the Seahawks. And um, we gave him his first college job. I was the offensive coordinator. Even though I was just a walk-on coach, everybody thought I was full-time because I was always there. And I would work these graveyard shifts and catch a couple of hours of sleep when I was at the I, I, like I said, I worked at a, it was the, called the Gramercy Towers in San Francisco, and Eddie DiBartolo lived there. I actually found his wallet in the basement one day at down the parking lot. I took it back to him. I, I took it up to him. I thought I'm finally going to get some real money for the. He's he'll he'll give me, and he just gave me a thank you, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> it was like, oh, Rach, you own the San Francisco Forty Nineers. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, so I, I worked for nothing for a long time and I got my first full-time job was $12,000 at Occidental College. And, you know, I got a division one in 1985. My, I got my first division one job at New Mexico state university in Las Cruces, although coaches call it lost causes because everybody's gone there to get fired for $22,000. So you were, I worked a long time and I brought kind of the way I broke into this to Canada. And, and when I was now laws have changed and made it harder, but I, I, I had a young guy, Chris Rossetti. I'll just, this is a, he, he's a, went to St. Mike's played at Guelph and he was like an intern in the summer up in our front office. And then his just before his senior year, he came in and asked me to be an intern. And I said, well, you know, that's that's fine. You can come in and do that. And and he said, well, yeah, but I really want to I want to be a GM someday. I want to do this. I said, well, you you need to come in here and do, do what I did, which was you need to be full time. I don't care if you can't feed yourself or how you feed yourself or where you it doesn't matter to me because I know what I went through. So you just have to be here and Nobody's going to know what you make. I will treat you like you make $100,000. So he did that. He actually gave up his senior year at Guelph, worked for me that year, and then for three more three more years, uh, two more years. And then he, through the contacts he made, 
He went to the NFL. He's now the he's now the uh, director of pro personnel for the New York Giants. Uh, again, just a 32 year old guy from Toronto who, again, had to do it the Jim Barker way, which is he can't do now. Now I, I if you tried to I tried to do that again, and they said, well, you're not allowed to do it. In you know you can't not pay somebody, and but I think that was a big part of my development was learning how to survive and the world without without relying on your job to uh to pay it and i've never taken a job or turned a job down because of money it's uh i got i was in toronto uh shoot in 97 i got hired for my i I was in montreal in 96 my first year and then don matthews offered me a job here in toronto with doug flutie and i was really excited about it but i get here one week and the university of virginia called and offered me their offensive coordinator job and double the money U.S. money, you know, it was kind of a catapult to, to doing whatever. And I went down and I, and Don said, you know, go down and check it out. And, you know, if that's, if that's better for you, you're young and whatever. I went down and checked it out and I just didn't feel, I didn't really like the guys that were on the staff. I love the head coach, George Welsh, who's now passed, but I, the other ones I just wasn't real excited about. And so I turned it down and stayed here again, be making with the thought being, I'm not making any decision on money. It's just not the it's not the right reason to make career decisions. So it's been a long career. I've started at the very bottom, coach at Pop Warner football and for free, and then volunteer and then very low paid. My first first ever part it was a part time coaching job was five hundred dollars for the season at Occidental. So yeah, I've been through a lot, but I've coached with a lot of great coaches. Uh, Andy Reid, when Mike and I were there, we left, and the next year Andy Reid came in, and so Andy was the San Francisco State guy, so I've gotten to know him very well. And You know, there's a lot of coaches that have gone through schools that don't even play football anymore, Occidental, San Francisco State, Chico State, UC Davis. There's just a bunch of them. I, 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 would, I was 20 years at, at the colleges down here, and then got an opportunity to come up with Bob Price, who I had worked with at Reno, and came up to Canada in 96. And outside of 99, I, I was here in Toronto in 99 and got my head, I head coaching job after three years in the CFL. Got fired. Not fired. I never got fired. I went in and my tea didn't work anymore. And the team had been sold by Labatt's to a guy named Sherwood Schwartz and nobody bothered to call me and it's the winter time and my kids were in school and I went to open the door for the office and it he didn't work anymore and, and so I called over to the CFL office and they said oh yeah we should have called you and so you think <laughs> Jim you really encapsulated it greatly when you say you can't do it for the money you got to do it because you love it. And I do want to go all the way back because you started your college football career with San Francisco State, 1978, learned your coaching craft with many different collegiate programs. But the stop I found most interesting was at Panoma Pitzer, where in addition to being the offensive coordinator for the football team, you were concurrently the head coach of the baseball team. Exactly. It was, uh, I was for eight years, a head co- I was a head coach at Occidental back in, in 85, then I went down to, uh, I went, I was at Reno, liked coaching there, but uh, my older kids, God, they had some problems. It just, Reno was a tough place to live. So we moved to California 
and I was a substitute teacher for about four months. So I applied for this job that was the head baseball coach and assistant football coach at Pomona College. Now it's Pomona Pitzer because athletically it's a consortium of colleges. Pomona College actually, and I believe it was 1992, more students turned down Harvard to go to Pomona than any that uh, they they went to uh, over any other school in the country. So more people turned down Harvard to go to Pomona than to go to Stanford or to go to any of these other, which was pretty amazing. It was a very academic school. Like you couldn't even recruit players back in those days. The SAT was big and and it's the scores have changed. But in those days, 1600 was perfect. We couldn't even recruit a player who wasn't a 1500 on its college board. So imagine how many football players were there and baseball players. But it was a great experience. And the kids there were a little snooty at times. And like the baseball program hadn't won a game. And in, I mean, they had they had won games because they played Caltech and Caltech was really bad. But they, they had averaged three wins a year in their conference for a long, long period of time, about 10 years. Anyway, when I went there, they were building a new facility and I, I, I enjoyed recruiting those kind of kids. I enjoyed recruiting against Stanford for academic kids to go to a, a great school. And we actually turned that program into top 25 in the nation in baseball. I was the, I was the head baseball coach, but I hired really good baseball people. I mean, and I've gotten to know the game. I, it's kind of interesting because now, for example, you'd look at quarterback play and quarterbacks in the NFL, quarterbacks in it. Throwing mechanics are talked about often, but they're never taught in football. I've been to hundreds of clinics. You rarely see a clinic on throwing mechanics. Well, when I was the, the baseball coach, I had to coach the pitchers one year. So I went and I looked around. And who who is a, a pitching coach that really has it together? And Tom House was in Texas, and Tom would had Nolan Ryan throwing with the Texas Rangers, had him throwing footballs in the in the outfield. And so I I went and called, went down and spent a couple days there with Tom House and learned throwing mechanics different. Tom House then once he got out of baseball, he's now become the ultimate guru on he has Tom Brady and Drew Brees and has taken that baseball mechanics and applied them to football so I'm one of the few people that really understands the throwing mechanics from a baseball perspective yet understands the schematics of football so it's it's been really good for me I I took a year or two year one of one of the years when I was fired and I went and I I coach quarterbacks all over the place and and I really, really enjoyed because most most guys haven't been taught how to throw up. Like in Canada here, one of the things that that they teach kids at a young age is point your toe where you're going to throw. Well, when you do that, it would be like standing up to a golf. You play a ba- uh, golf, Andrew? I do a little. Not well. So if you stood up to the ball and then pointed your foot at the hole, your front foot, Imagine what swinging the club would be like. You'd have no power in your lower body. Yet that's what we teach young kids because they just don't understand the dynamics of the of the mechanics. So be having a chance to teach this to a lot of people uh, up here in Canada and and down south has been a, has been a blast for me. So yeah, baseball gave me a a different perspective, but it's all just 
it's about dealing with people and being able to empower the I was the head baseball coach, but I empowered the the, the assistant coaches that really knew baseball. One of them actually had never even been to college. He then went would after six years with me, he got when got his college degree. He's been a for the last twenty five years a head coach of college baseball down in uh, some small school in Missouri. So you know it's uh, Lindenwood College is the name of it. So that, that, those kind of things excite me. Rossetti in the NFL and and this guy coaching baseball when he had never had a degree, but that comes I believe from empowering people to understand that you can do anything you want. You just have to do it. Well, in addition to coaching baseball and football, your biggest challenge might have been figuring out what a sage hen was. You were the Panoma sage hens. Did you ever figure that out, Jim? Yes. It's a bird that when it's attacked, it goes and fakes like it's dead. Now, try firing up your football team with that. <laughs> that league is, they have the sage hens. Um, they have the Whittier Poets. Uh, so there's the poets in that league, the stags. It's just, uh, I don't know, it's a, it's a different kind of league. It's uh, Division three football and baseball and, and bat. I mean, it's a, it's a great, it's called the Skyac, Southern California Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. But the name's in there, but the Seichans, when I, I studied what a Seichan was, I thought, okay, we're going to be that, the hand. And then, you know, I tried to do hook them hands and all these things. And then I find out it's a bird that when it's attacked, it's going to go and fake dead till the till the people pass you can't make this stuff up no now jim your cfl coaching career began in 1996 a member of the montreal alouettes coaching staff i want to ask how you got to canada and i want you to be honest first of all your poor mother you've already told her you could switch it from <laughs> business to pe now you're telling her you're going to go to canada be honest did you even know we played football in canada you know i did a guy named brian kelly played little league with me and pony league baseball and same age. And he ended up becoming a great player up in Edmonton. He was a wide receiver. And when I was in uh, California, you could late night get games. Ga the Edmonton Eskimos would be on television and, you know, playing the, the BC lions. And so you, we got to see some of it. And at San Francisco state, Vic Rowan was very close. He, he sent a couple guys, Mike Kelly, who ended up being a head coach up here. He came through San Francisco State. And Vic was very close with a lot of people. And and so I kind of got a, a knowledge of that. The way I got here was actually in 1994, a guy named Pat Perlis, whose dad, George Perlis, was the head coach of Michigan State. He and I were working a, a camp together, a kid's camp. And he said, I just got hired by Ray Yock to go be the offensive line coach. I've never coached offensive line. Can you come up and help me. I, we have a thing called the guest coach. So my first experience in Canada was as a guest coach in Saskatchewan when Glenn Souter was a player and uh, Ray Elgard and name center. I didn't know at the time these guys were legends, but they, they're, they're true legends. And, uh, so it was, it was exciting for me. I came up for two weeks and just had the greatest time. I thought if I can make a living doing this, that would be the ultimate. So that was 94. Then in 1996, Bob Price, I had worked in Reno with a guy named Don Wanak and got to know Bob Price through Don. Um, we were on the same staff together at the University of Nevada, Don Wanak and I. And Bob Price was 
with Baltimore and was going to be the new head coach in Montreal and putting his staff together. And Don suggested he talk to me. So um, I came up, um, Bob called me and uh, we chatted and I said, I would love to come up to, to Canada. That to me was, I mean, you have no idea the Ray Yacht sit thing. I'm going to tell you one quick story because this is just one of the great stories of all time. We're the last day I'm there. Ray says, okay, so what they did was that was the first year they eliminated beer in the locker rooms of CFL teams. Uh-oh. So that, uh, all the years up to then, they could go in after practice and have a beer during training camp. And well, so the, the you know, the, the Canadians in, in Saskatchewan, they, they were brilliant. They went and rented a milk truck or somebody donated them a milk truck and they'd fill it up every Wednesday. They'd load it up with beer for the week. You know, they had sponsors, Saskatchewan, they love their. So anyway, so my last day there and Ray says, hey, you guys, when you're running them and they're stretching, be heads up. And as soon as you see me, you know, come and come because I've got a surprise for you. So we're 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 running them in sprints. And all of a sudden there's a honk on a horn and the milk truck is at the gate and all the coaches sprint to the milk truck. The players don't realize what's happening. We all jump in and Ray takes off and players are running after because they had just filled it up with beer. It was uh, on a Wednesday. They go running after us and Ray had, ta- had taken us up and he had a big barbecue planned, a uh, steak barbecue. And we returned the truck empty, no beer. And <laughs> the next day, I guess they did. And then I, I left. But I thought, you know, these guys understand. They get what this is all about. And, and, you know, the players just were so receptive to everything. And so when I went to, when Bob asked me to, you know, if I'd have an interest, I said, absolutely. And back in those days, we had two coaches. So Peter Voss and myself coached the offense. Peter was, had been the head coach at Holy Cross. And I don't know how he knew Bob. And we just had a a wonderful time. It was, it was just, it was just a fantastic time. And uh, it was my first experience where I actually, you know, moved up here. I moved my family up. My girls at that time, shoot, they're 38 and 40 now, but at that time they were in junior high school. And so we put them in, um, I I had to drive an hour and 10 minutes to get to work so they could go to an English school because you got girls they are in grade seven, eight, you know, to, they, they would have had to go to a French school where they, they didn't understand, wouldn't understand anything. We were coming from California where they, they had Spanish, I lived in Hudson, and they went to Hudson High School. Matthew Lombardi actually sat behind Kate in math, and she supposedly still stays in touch with him. So it's kind of interesting. But um, So we lived in Hudson, went there, and after the first year in Montreal, where we lost to Toronto in the playoffs in Flutie in the, in the Eastern Final, we made it to the Eastern Final, and we come in the next, on the next Monday and we're getting ready to get, do our off season, get our off season assignments. And Jim pop, the general manager says, well, the owner's quitting. He doesn't want to do this anymore. So you guys will stop getting paid as soon as you, you know, right. As soon as this, this paycheck goes through, there's no more. And it's like, what? (laughs) So, you know, and I would get prepared. I know it was very volatile. I knew it was very volatile and I had prepared for it. And, um, like I say, I was I, I was fortunate because that happened in November, and by December, ah, the 
I guess early January, Adam Rita had left Toronto and gone to BC and Charlie Carpenter and a bunch of the guys that I coached had played for Don the year before in Baltimore because Baltimore relocated to Montreal. And they told Don, you know, that they really liked me as a coach. So Don invited me down to come down with Flutie. And then that's when the Virginia thing happened. But I was fortunate I stayed with him because Don Matthews was a genius. That was, that's a true legend. I mean, I've been around Don Matthews and Doug Flutie. Those guys are legends. And and they and I was fortunate that early in my career, I got a chance to to be with those guys. Well, let's talk about that, Jim, because fast forward to 1999 when you replaced the late great Don Matthews as head coach of the Argonauts, becoming the youngest coach, youngest head coach in the CFL. How was that first experience as being the boss? It was it was interesting because I, I knew there was a good chance it was going to be a one-year thing because the team was up for sale. And that's why Don left and went to Edmonton and you know, he wanted me to go with him to Edmonton and said, what do you want to do this for one era? I, you know, I figure I can be a head coach and, you know, you, you always figure oh, I'll be so good. They can't get rid of me. I did that twice in my career where I, I took jobs that I never should have taken. And this was probably one of them, but I, I was working with a guy named Bob Nicholson, who's still in town. And, and one of the, just one of the great people in my life. And he was the president and asked me to to uh to come and be the head coach and you know i i, I just I, I was not going to say no so we went nine and nine and we ended up losing in the playoffs and we're, we're an average team jay barker this is a great story jay barker was our quarterback from alabama so he and i would walk off the field and they would be yelling barker you suck and he'd say i think they're talking to you coach and i said no they're talking to you buddy <laughs> That's good to have someone to uh, shield uh, the, uh, the the abuse on. Yeah. So so yeah, that was my first foray into being a head coach. And then, like I say, I didn't get fired from that. I just went in, and the key did not work. So I, I to this day I say I have that was one I didn't get fired from. And then I was to the XFL down to because uh, I was still getting paid by the Argos through one more year, and then. Uh, the XFL was starting up, and I had two opportunities. I had a, an opportunity with Dick Butkus and then with Al Luganville in L.A., and I, I chose to go to L.A. Um, I actually had built a home in Las Vegas because I said, this is going to be a move-around kind of deal after the... I, I mean, my kids were... One was just graduating from high school as we left Toronto because they went to Streetsville High School, and um, we lived over in Mississauga where our facility was. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to just get one place. And so built a home in Las Vegas and got this job in LA. So I commuted and lived at my mother's house, uh, my mother's condo. My father had, he was, he was ill. So he was living in a, in a home at that time. So uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting time and we won the XFL championship. So Jim, let's talk about this. Let me set it up, if I may. You jumped to the XFL. This was a professional football league created by the World Wrestling Federation's Vince McMahon (laughs) as an alternative to the NFL. The XFL only lasted one season proper. But as you just noted, the good news is you, Jim, also have an XFL championship ring from your time as offensive coordinator for the Los Angeles Extreme. Now, 
you guys won the championship. It was called the Million Dollar Game at the LA Coliseum. And by the way, this remains Los Angeles's only professional football championship since 1904. Two questions. Do you have a ring from that championship? And two, did you get your million dollars? Okay, here's this. This is great. This is great stuff. Because at the beginning of the year, Vince McMahon stood up in front of us and he said, listen, we don't care if one person comes to the game. This is about more than that. And so we had people moving across the country to, you know, to coach and things like that. So we're getting ready to play the million dollar game. And he said, these rings that we're going to get you guys are going to shame the Super Bowl ring. And so whoever wins, you know, we were playing San Francisco. Yeah, L.A. and San Francisco. I'll never forget it. And it was a million dollars, winner take all, loser, you got nothing for the game. So you got nothing. So it was a million dollar pot. And uh, we we actually won the game quite handily. Uh, It was like, I think, 40 to 6. I mean, we won big. And we, we took the million dollars. It came out about $27,000 a person because they split up the million dollars. Each of us made about $27,000 extra, which was good because, you know, we, none of us were were making a, a lot. That league had it. They, they really did some things well. Everybody made the exact same amount of money. Quarterbacks made $5,000 more and kickers made $5,000 less. And then if you won the game, every player would get, I think it was a, four thousand or forty five hundred dollar win bonus so uh it was it was a lot of fun that way motivating players was you know and yeah and there was a lot of cost certainty but mcmahon did things in a way that he ended up spending losing 120 million dollars so in may the league had league meeting and they asked me if i would have an interest in being the head coach they were going to expand to philadelphia and vince's thing is he wanted people to grow in the XFL. And because we had won and I was a coordinator, you know, I would go and become the head coach. So I thought, I'm, oh man, this could be great. I'd be a head coach of the Philadelphia team. So um, that was the beginning of the week in uh, of the league meetings in May. At the end of the meetings, that, that toward the end of the, the week, our head coach calls me and he says, are you sitting down? And I thought, he's going to tell me I'm the head coach of the, I said, yeah, what's going on? He said, well, they just dropped the league. And I said, what? Yeah, they canceled the league. So about a month later, we get our rings. And they, they look like they're out of a Cracker Jack box, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, they're okay. It's not horrible. Like, in comparison to the Grey Cup rings, it looks like it's out of a Cracker Jack box. So, you know, it, it didn't pan out the way it should have. and uh, But that, you know, it was it was a great experience. I loved it. Uh, I was, it was probably my two favorite years I've ever coached was the XFL year. And I had Tommy Maddox. I was just the offensive coordinator. We had a defensive head coach. And then it's when that happened and, and they folded the league, Don Matthews had just gotten the Montreal job. So he hired me to come be the offensive coordinator in Montreal, where I could be the offensive coordinator. Don's a defensive coach. So, and he wasn't going to give me any, and we had, and Anthony Calvillo was his first, you know, he hadn't done anything yet. He had been a backup to Tracy Ham, so he was going to be our quarterback. So it was, I, I spent the offseason working with him, trying to help him get developed. 
he ends up winning the MVP that year. We win a great cup. And so I, I won the XFL championship, the great cup back to back years. And then I made another bad career decision. <laughs> Before we get to that, Jim, I do want to, you mentioned Tommy Maddox, the Los Angeles extreme winning team in the XFL was led by Tommy Maddox. You worked very closely with him as offensive coordinator. Now, he not only won XFL Player of the Year, but later went on the following season, 2002, to be named the NFL Comeback Player of the Year with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Mm-hmm. Tommy Maddox was originally a first-round draft choice of the Denver Broncos. He was the heir apparent to John Elway, but didn't pan out. How did you manage to get Tommy Maddox straightened out? Well, Tommy, he went to Denver behind John Elway, and John Elway's a totally different player than what Tommy is. They're both six four, six five, so you think, well, he's a, he's like John Elway. Well, John Elway was a totally different, real strong-armed player. Tommy's a quick release. He sees things that he's very accurate. That's more the offense we ran was that type of an offense. And he just wasn't he wasn't suited to play in Dan Reeves' offense in Denver. That that happens so often with quarterbacks is the things they do well don't necessarily match up with what that team is doing or like he was a backup to to Elway. Well, he was, even though he was six five, they were both from the West Coast. Well, Tommy's from Texas, but you know they just seemed to be alike, but they were very much not alike. Tommy in at the in the XFL got to d- display what he can do, which is get, get the ball out of his hands, be accurate. He was he was just he was outstanding, and uh, I think and that's what they did with him in Pittsburgh was they understood they got the ball out of his hands. He was able to do the things that he can do, not the slow developing play action and then throw that 22-yard comeback on the sideline on the opposite side of the field that Elway would throw. That wasn't what Tommy was good at. What Tommy was good at was get the ball, see where I got to go with it, and get it out of my hands and make it be accurate to the, to the guy. So I think they saw a lot of what he can do and and – the offense evolved into what Tommy could do. Well, you certainly did get him turned around and led him on the path to success. Before we leave the XFL, I have to ask you, Jim, over if you got one more story about Vince McMahon, when you're with him and you've dealt with him, is he the real deal or uh, more show than uh, business? Well, I mean, it, it ended, it ended, I'm not going to say badly, but they told the coaches, and we had coaches, and it wasn't so much for me because I was in L.A. and living in Las Vegas. But, you know, guys, it was in May that they did this, and they said they're going to stop paying us in uh, in June. They're going to pay us one more month. And I thought, that's just, you can't do that because you can't, as a coach, that is not the hiring season. Everybody's got their staffs in college, and it do- doesn't matter. where, Even in high school, you can't go get a job. So... Um, you know, there's coaches who are selling cars. I was working in a, a in a back in a back room boiler room, making calls, trying to sell car loans to use car lots. I mean, it was that was kind of the gist of what was happening, and and it was going to take all benefits away. We had a coach who moved from Florida, retired guy Jim Hillis, moved from Florida, and was stuck. I mean, he had nowhere to go. We had no benefits and. So I kind of got the group together and a kid who had played for me at Occidental was a, a labor lawyer in New York, one of the top, top guys. And I got the assistants together and we basically had the USA Today was going to write an article about this. And 
we were real close to having this article and we sent it to them. This is this is what's coming out as to what you've done to all these coaches you lied to. So it went to Basil, Basil somebody and and who was his he was he was his just the guy right underneath him. So we we got a call and they said we will pay you all for a full year. Uh, we understand now the what what happened and so we all got paid for a full all the assistant coaches the head coaches were they made a lot of money they were okay but the assistant coaches were we were the ones who were getting strapped so um, we were able to get a settlement and get our full pay and and full benefits for a year and so I applaud him for that I mean he he wasn't he wasn't uh, well he was greedy at the beginning but in the end. He was a, a promoter. That's what he is. He's a promoter. And again, you have to take things with a grain of salt and understand that he's trying to sell what he's cooking. Yep. Well, he certainly is a promoter and they'll, they'll be writing case studies about the XFL. And of course, now we got a brand new kind of uh, yeah. competitor to the NFL. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, Please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We got hockey mogul Graham Rooston, former CFL commissioner Mark Cohan, former Argos owner David Cinnamon, the king of Bay Street, Wes Hall, and our ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray. How they did it directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. Back to the CFL, Jim. As you noted, in 2002, you returned to the CFL. Fast forward to the 2012 season, where your absolutely stunning trade was made for all-star quarterback Ricky Ray from the Edmonton Eskimos. And this led to our Toronto Argos winning the 100th Grey Cup at home at the Rogers Center. This must have been an absolutely huge highlight for you because it certainly was for the city. It was. It was you know what? The one thing about being in Toronto is people are, it's almost like they're in the closet. They're afraid to say they're Argo fans. But you know, for that time, when I got the job in 2010, Mark Cohan called me and said, Jim, because the team had won three games, I think, in 09 and two games in, in 08. So it was, we were coming, they were coming off of five or six wins in two years when I came in 2010. And I was fortunate. I came in and, you know, won the coach of the year and we were able to start to make some changes. And then at 11, I realized it's, I can't do both. And so I, Scott Milanovic, who I was trying to help getting the job here was kind of interesting because I was trying to help Scott get it back in 2010 and some things happened anyway. So I ended up being the coach and then I was going to bring him here in 2012. So I was going to get the thing cleaned up. And then sure enough, he came in in 2012. But after we won that game, it was cool to be an Argo fan. It was cool to be a CFL fan. And I thought, wow, this has finally happened, where I think Toronto has turned the corner. Well, the owner at the time also owned the BC Lions, um, Mr. Braley. And, and, you know, he did a lot for the league. But at that point, he chose to get rid of everybody in our front office. I mean... You know, when they say football is not just the coaches and the players, that's true. Beth Waldman, who now runs the city of Toronto's media, she was our media person. One, of, She's the best ever. I mean, she really is phenomenal. But Beth was our, our media person. Daniel Steinfeld, who's now 
I think he's the head of the TREB, the Toronto Real Estate Board, but he was our director of say, we had uh, an all-star team and all got along well. We'd all get together after games and it was a special time. And I think we were ready to explode while Mr. Braley fired all those people and brought in his own people, I guess. And, you know, things just kind of went downhill and um, we never had a facility. Our place burned down in 2012, the year we won that. Our facility in Mississauga burned down. We would have players for three years. We'd have players come. They wouldn't know where we were going to be practicing. They'd come. We'd have a meeting spot. And we sometimes met in a library. We, you know, sometimes in a bar. We, we'd meet at different places. It was, it was not run the way a pro football team should be run, but never complained about it. Um, we just didn't, it, it was just a very difficult time that I don't think people really have a grasp of, but we kept plugging away at it. And, uh, but yeah, that, that 2012, that time in there from when we won the gray cup for about two months, while we still had all those people there, that was, that was the ultimate in terms of, you know, being involved in the Toronto organization. Now, since 2012, We've won three great cups between between 2012 and now more than any team in the CFL, even though we went through all those things. That team in 2017, you know, I got fired in 2016. You know, our president, for whatever reason, needed somebody he could control better, I guess. So I had two years left on my contract and he chose to fire me. Um, so the 2017 was... I, I had already built the team. I got fired in March. They they go to training camp two or I got fired the end of February. They went to training camp a couple months after that and ended up winning the Grey Cup. And then in 2018, they all got fired because they were terrible. In 2019, it was a tough couple of years after that. And then last year, Pinball asked me to go back as a as an advisor, which I did. And you know, I had I it was fine. Being an advisor is a lot harder than. It, it was difficult for me. Guy, guys who I, who I basically hired ten years ago, and now have moved up the ladder because of being empowered. And now, you know, they 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 look at you like you're an idiot. <laughs> so, and again, I was just an advisor, but it was it was a lot harder on me than than I thought it would be. So TSN gave me the opportunity to come back, and and so I, I I'm excited to be back with TSN. Well, as you know, Jim, 2022 last year, you were part of another Toronto Argonauts Great Cup Championship, your third with the double blue. And then after nearly 26 years in the CFL, you returned this past May. You had been there before. Back to TV, TSN as a CFL panelist. What do you like or not like about being on TV? What I like is I get to give here. Here, It's interesting because my granddaughter said, Papa, what is it you do? And she was doing a thing for her class. She's she's seventh grade, I think, or eighth grade. She's doing a thing on what her grandfather does. And I said, you know what I do is I take a there's a group of people who just have for whatever reason are on that channel. And I need to excite them to want to watch a game. And then at halftime, if they're around, I need to excite them to watch the second half of that game. I said, so basically, I'm kind of in the entertainment business in that I need to to do something or say, 
say something. I think I bring a little different perspective. I think the other, the guys in that panel are so, so good. And um, I'm fortunate to even be, be allowed to be in there. But uh, I think I bring a different perspective. Haven't, haven't been an assistant coach, haven't been a, uh, a coordinator, haven't been a head coach, haven't been a general manager, been a, been a senior vice. I've been through all of it. And I think I can bring to the fan base and I love the CFL fan base. I, I mean, CFL fans are different. It's so different from the NFL. And that's why people talk about, well, it's minorly. It's, it's not minor. This is a major, it's the best three down football in the world. I've had chances to, to move and go up. The CFL is special. And, and part of what makes it that way is the fan base. And there's nowhere you go where the people aren't just, they, they love the CFL. I mean, going to a great cup and going to a Super Bowl is about as diametrically different. When you go to a Super Bowl, it's all corporate. It's all about the corporate tents and the corporate this and the corporate that. You go to a, uh, to a great cup festival and it's all about the fans. It's, it's all about going through the fan rooms and, it's a camaraderie and a thing that brings this country together. Like CFL fans know, but people who haven't ventured into that, they don't get it. They look at it and say, well, that's not the Blue Jays and it's not the NFL and it's not. And it's so much better for Canada than those things could be. And of course, only in the CFL during Great Cup Week can you get a horse in the lobby of the uh, Royal York Hotel. <laughs> Absolutely. Readers do that every year. Now, Jim, you've done it all in the CFL. You know everybody. They've either played for you. They worked with you. You may have hired them. You may have brought them up. So I wonder, in your role today as a TV analyst, how you straddle that line between kind of subjectively assessing the good and bad of what you see on the field versus, you know, you have all these personal relationships. Well, to be honest with you, I, I, I'm loyal to the fan first in this position. Like there's, it's very rare that I'm coaching when I was coaching or when I was advising or when I was general, that there were people on the other side that weren't close friends of mine, but that it can, it comes to who, who you're servicing. And right now I service fans. So it's easy for me to be honest. And if I lose a friendship over it, then that friendship really probably isn't that strong. And that's kind of the way I, and I'm going, th going through that this week because, you know, there's a real, real close friend of mine that we've won three great cups together, Chris Jones in Edmonton, that's 0-3 and is, you know, he's going through a real tough time, but he's made some bad decisions. And to go on the air and talk about that is not an easy thing to do, but the fans deserve to understand from my perspective in management, some of the, some of the things I think, you know, went wrong. And so again, it's, it's a difficult, it's difficult to a point, but the guys who are truly my friends understand how I am. Uh, again, if I lose people that, that I think are my friends, it's probably best I find out that what they really are. So, you know, I, I, I that's how I, that's how I deal with it. Business is business. Doesn't have to be personal. Doug Flutie, why was he the best player you ever coached? And how did his whole attitude make all the players around him better? He had an air about him. Here's a great example. So about the second week into 
into the season back in 97, he buys a ping pong table for the locker room. And I, and you know, I would always meet with him early in the morning because he was always there real early. In fact, the first time I met him, he had broken into our trailers over in Mississauga and he had got there at three o'clock. He had driven at three o'clock in the morning. He got there faster than he thought he would. So he had broken in and I went in and saw, but early in the morning, and I said, Doug, that was really a great thing, buying a, the team a, a ping pong table. He says, I didn't do it for them. He says, I'm so sick of these guys saying they're good. I'm going to kick every one of their asses, and then I, then I don't have to listen to it anymore. But that is the way Doug Flutie is in everything he does. He, We were doing testing one day, and they were testing rookies on a short shuttle. And he says, what's the fastest time so far? And I said, it's 4-1. And he goes, let me see what I can do. And he jumps in and does a 3-8. I mean, he just is Doug Flutie. He's a one-of-a-kind. I've never been around anybody like him. In the in the Eastern final that 97 year, we were behind. We were struggling. And he just said, I'll, I'll take, you know, take this. And he would he called quarterback draw, I think, three times and then hit pinball on a long bomb and we end up winning it. He just was magic. You know, I haven't seen a quarterback like him until this Nathan Rourke came in last year and everybody around him became better. Doug Doug told me if we had a mismatch on the offensive line, like we had a guy blocking a guy that maybe couldn't be blocked, he said, if that guy makes a play, that's on me. These guys, these offensive linemen all had their best years when they played with Doug Flutie behind them because Doug understood that. He understood there's going to be mismatches. So that's my job as the quarterback to deal with that. Most guys can't. They're just trying to figure out how they don't get sacked. He's thinking about how can I make sure that that guy is successful in what he's doing. And I'll never forget, we had a game in Winnipeg, and we were up by uh, 45 points or something. And Don said, Doug, I'm going to take you out. He says, no, no, I got to get Didi, Dwayne Demetrician. I got to get him a touchdown. He he needs one. We haven't. He hasn't. doesn't have one. Give me one more one more time down the field. Sure enough, he takes us down the field and then throws a touchdown to, to Dwayne Demetrician. That's the that's who Doug Flutie was. He was about making sure everybody had their best year. And I wouldn't trade that year for anything. I learned I learned more about how players can become championship. I mean, he was just he's different than anybody because everybody around him, everybody was a better player because he was there. I was a better coach because Doug Flutie was there. That's what that's what made him special. He just he had a way about him that he wasn't going to be told you can't do this or be careful here because this guy's single blocking this guy. It didn't matter to him. As long as he knew he could handle it. We had one game where we had a linebacker who they kept blitzing and I said, you know, I don't know that we're going to be able to get our guy over there. He said, don't worry about it. He'll never make a play. And he didn't. He came through clean and Doug just sidestepped him. It was, and like I say, he did things like that, Andrew, that were, I can't, you can't put it into words. Team first and just get the job done. Yeah. Another guy that you love and you spent a lot of time with him, the iconic one and only Michael Pinball Clemens. You coached him. You worked for him and with him. Is he the smiling assassin or truly football's nicest human being? You know, he has a very, very nice exterior. I don't think he's ever come in the office and not smiling and 
hugging everybody and making sure they're having a great day. But I'll tell you this, I'm not sure there's a whole lot more competitive people than Pitt. I'll never forget, we had a game last year and there was an incident on the sideline and I was sitting next to him in our box and I looked over and said, what do you think of it? And he was already down and on the sideline and he wasn't going to have that happen to his team. So, you know, he's, he's ultra competitive. I think he understands his strengths and his weaknesses and he doesn't try. He empowers those below him and doesn't try to go out of his lane of what his, his thing is. This Toronto Argonaut team this year is better than the one we had last year. And last year's team won the Grey Cup. Nobody gives them gives us credit for that. That's okay. Um, that's just Toronto. It's the way it's supposed the media nobody even we didn't even have any media at our train at the training camp in Guelph two straight years. But that's part of what being in Toronto is about. But this team is they're so together, and again, that's a pinball trait. He makes he takes people that maybe nobody else wants, and he has the ability to do this. I I I have trouble, you know, with trouble guys. I think eventually are going to rear their head, and they did for us last year. But pinball handles it in a way only pinball can. And I would tell these young guys, you know, watch what he does, but don't think for a second you can do that. Because I'm I'm 66 years old and been in this league for 20 some 26 25 years, I can't do that. There's certain things only he can do, and that's what makes him pinball. He's a real beacon of enthusiasm, no question. Jim, you've been great with your time. As we close up, I do want to ask: so much football exposure. What is your favorite quirk of Canadian football? And can even you, the great Jim Barker, explain what a rouge is? I can't. And a rouge is important that it stays in the Canadian game. And, and maybe that is my favorite thing. I mean, to be honest with you, and I, I fights with this. They give it a point even for missing a field goal. Football is a field position game. And the only way you can get a rouge is if a ball is kicked into the end zone or out of the end zone and they don't bring it out. Okay. Well, you only get that if you've moved the ball close enough to be able to have your kicker or your punter get it out. Plus, it rewards you if you have a very strong kicker, not just somebody who can make the field goals, the short field goals. But when you have somebody who can boom the ball, that's an advantage to him. You have to remember the Canadian game derives from rugby, where kicking is a much more important part of rugby. They do it every play there. That's why the kicking becomes much more important. To me, the whole rewarding of field position for a rouge adds to our game. I lost a game to Montreal. I'll never forget it in 2010 because they kicked the ball in. And if we don't get it out, they're going to beat us by a point. It was a tie game. Last play of the game, their field goal kicker missed it. But it was too far back. We had to run it out. We So we tried to get it out, kicked it because we couldn't get it out. So kicked it out. They go over, pick it up and kick it back in. I mean, that to me is what Canadian football is all about. I love that about it. It's, I, I, I just, I love three downs. I think it's, I love the movement, the size of the field. 
This game is different than the NFL. This is for athletes. There's a lot of guys playing the NFL right now could not play up here. The field is too big. It's You have to be able to run, and it's played by smaller players, but much more athletic. The biggest thing I love about the Canadian Football League are the players and the fans. I just think that that is what separates and makes, once people get initiated to the Canadian Football, and you go over to a game at BMO Field, you'll feel it. It's a different kind of crowd base than it is when you go to a, you know, a TFC game or a Blue Jays game or what. It's just a different vibe. And that, to me, is what I love about the CFL. I love it. Well, what a great way to close. It's an excellent explanation, and your your passion is that. Uh, you got me fired up, Jim. <laughs> Where can we best follow you? Are you big on social media? You know what? I haven't even done that. I I, I tell I, I always told my kids nothing good ever happens on Facebook. That you you're never going to have anything good come out of that. And Twitter, and you know I'm I'm you can see I'm a little bit emotional, and I. I w- I'm afraid that I might put, so I don't really have anything now, but I am getting one because now I'm in the media and I, I have to kind of change my ways. So hopefully in the next two weeks, I'm going to have something and I will pass it on to you and you can pass it on to the listeners. Excellent. Well, we look forward to that. Jim Parker's introduction to social media. It has been fabulous getting to know you. I want to thank you for your time and your stories, and I want to wish you continued success as we enjoy seeing you on TSA. Well, thank you, Andrew. Like I say, I'm humbled by this. What you, what what you do, and I mean, I, again, I'm just I'm a, I'm a ball coach who just lucked out and has been in a great country where people have accepted me, and uh, I'm just tickled to death to be able to be here. And uh, again, thank you for including me in your podcast. Well, thank you. We're so glad you're here. And to the listeners, on behalf of Jim Barker, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.